Octanon Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Stephen Roberts is an infantry veteran of the United States Marine Corps. He currently works as a government contractor in global contingency theaters to include Central Asia and Latin America. Mr. Roberts was at the Pentagon during the September 11th attacks and operates a social media page dedicated to veterans and the application of Stoic philosophy. You can learn more about his work on Facebook at Stoic Warrior. That's his page. Stephen, thank you so much for being here today. It was an honor to share the stage with you virtually at StoicCon. There were so many people. I mean, Ryan Holiday. Nancy Sherman, Donald Robertson. I mean, the list went on. You know, especially anything relevant to the philosophy of Stoicism and philosophy as a whole, too. Right. There, there are many people with very diverse yes. philosophical backgrounds that got to speak there. And so it was it was a lot of fun and I think a really good event. And I greatly appreciate you accepting, Marcus, my invitation to be on the panel. Please. It was an honor to do so. I mean, well, you know that I, JC Glick and I are, are great friends and then being able to be exposed to all those people. And then the professor, what was her name again? Professor Jennifer Baker. So Jennifer Baker. And she teaches. Yeah, she teaches philosophy down. I believe it's at the University of Charleston. I'd have to look at my data, so that's don't she, quote. That's what she was saying. So, yeah. just an excellent person, though excellent personality, has been very open with her support and 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 willing to interact as well. So, just just a lovely person. Yeah, and every person on there. I mean, we had thirty collective speakers. Some speaking ten minutes, and then Ryan Holiday was able to speak for twenty minutes, and then Nancy Sherman as well. Yes, we had a few keynote speakers. Nancy and Ryan were a part of that keynote member group. We actually, we had so many speakers that came forward to speak that we had to reduce everybody to 10 minutes or less. We got 20 minutes as well on the panel, which as you saw for a panel, even 20 minutes is very fast, right? And I had probably five, six questions that I did not even get to because there's just no way to to answer those level of questions and sh- short snippets. You have to you know have to put a little background on it. But it was what it was. It was it was a great I think especially a first one. And I know that we're already looking and and talking about doing another one next year. And then, in fact, the preliminary kind of splash in the water is maybe Athens. So we'll see how things are opened up. But let's go to the birthplace of Western philosophy. I agree. I think that would be beautiful. And I, if we're able to do that, I can't wait to, to be there and be a part of it or just observe it or, or watch me in the audience. Either way, I think it's going to be fantastic. Now, normally my, one of my first questions when I ask somebody is, what is a philosophy that you believe in or a philosophy that you use? But since we came out of the gate with stoicism, you asked some incredible questions on that board. And I'd like to ask you a couple of them just to kind of set the tone here. And 
it's it's a great question. Why is Stoicism seen as the default philosophy for those that serve in the military? I believe one of the phrases that somebody says that was that people that are in the military are Stoics but don't know it. Stoic but don't know it was kind of the, the verbiage that people were throwing around. Well, I think that there's two reasons for that. One is there is the, I guess, what we would call almost the smallest Stoic term, which is the the suppression of emotions, right? The top layer understanding that things are outside of one's control, that uh, resilience, those sorts of things, being able to handle things without showing much emotional de- depression or those sorts of things, that is seen as stoic. And I, it, it is easy to see how that is also seen as that's your typical military person. But I think to a greater extent, also, the philosophical foundations of Stoicism itself work very hand-in-hand hand with the philosophy of the warrior, the philosophy of the soldier. And, and we had talked about this a little bit in the panel. Stoicism was founded from Socratic philosophy. Socrates was a warrior, right? Socrates dealt in hand-to-hand combat and was renowned for his abilities in the field. And so there is no doubt that his philosophy was greatly influenced by his experiences and his experiences were extremely stressful. And so I think that as Stoics, we would kind of say we are more in line with Socratic philosophy than, than any of the other schools. But I think in, in taking that into consideration, there's a lot more foundational with Stoicism that I think easily aligns with someone's philosophy in the military when it comes to having to accept many things about life that are not easy, right? The military, just like Stoicism, is not a philosophy of seeking pleasure, right? It's it's about taking the hard road, doing the hard things that the community needs, and being the ones willing to step forward, willing to put your chest on the line for that bullet. And as we know, we've got Memorial Day coming up. That's something that so many uh, of our brothers and sisters have done for us and that, that we need to uh, memorialize as well. Yeah, we have to live for them. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I love that you pointed that out about Socrates because people hear the Socratic method or they understand that it's based on logic, but many of them forget the aspect that he was a warrior. Right. And so that directly influenced the very, you know, hack away all the inessential, cut away all the bullshit, get right to yep. philosophy. Uh, again, like when you're saying on the the panel, philosophy was something that they lived by. It wasn't right. just this quote or this tattoo that they got. It was very much, that was how they lived. And it was very utilitarian. Yeah. It was very practical, very pragmatic. So if philosophy is only as useful as the people that apply it, but in, in saying all that, you were talking about the small s. Can you give us some examples of the, the big s of what stoicism is, as opposed to just having a stiff upper lip as a as Donald would say. Yeah, so so the big S of Stoicism would, would come with some sort of foundational principles of Stoicism, right? So some of the things are understanding that Stoicism, above all, is a virtue ethic philosophy, right? So as the philosophy would say that the only way to get to a happy life is to lead a life of virtue. Those terms... In, in the modern world can get a little bit confused with what virtue means. Virtue tends to kind of hold this idea of morality. And while that can play into it, the ancient Greek use of the term for virtue meant excellence. So it, it means to be basically the best 
human being that you can be for for the circumstances that you're in. It can mean being the best janitor that you you can be because you're a janitor, the best businessman that you can be because you're a businessman and those sorts of things. And of course, the Stoics broke that down into the cardinal virtues, right? You have justice, you have temperance and those cardinal virtues. And so those were other ways to actually flow what virtue meant in, into a more defined role into the greater idea of virtue. So first and foremost, it's understanding that virtue is the only path forward that is really acceptable for a Stoic. And so suppressing of emotions is not generally or always the virtuous path. I think we all understand there are certain things that happen. And, and sometimes we have to uh, make allowances for things that are not going to help us in the t- at times. But if we don't have a philosophical base to why we're doing certain things or what things mean, it generally is, is something that grows to be very negative later on in our lives. Yeah, and I think that that's why it's so important to have those very bright lines about where those lanes are for us. Understand, like you said, if I can default just to this idea of virtue, if I can put that into my daily practice, because we're all practicing Stoics, right? We're, we're never perfect Stoics. We're all practicing. And right. I remember in Zen, they say, if you feel like you're enlightened, go spend the weekend with your family. That's right. Because it, it changes. They'll let you know how silly you are half the time. <laughs> they will. And then all of a sudden you find yourself getting aggravated yeah. and you're like, Oh, is this, is this virtuous? Is this noble? That's right. And that keeps us very honest. Yeah. Another way to look at virtue in, in, in the very warrior sense as is as an honor code, right? And the, the word honor obviously can be fraught with a little definition dangers depending on who is, who is saying it and what it means to that individual. In many ways, looking at living a life of virtue, even if you're a soldier, some people are confused at what that, that would mean, right? It means being an excellent soldier, right? It means having justice when you're doing what you're doing in the field. It means basically being the best person you can be and the best application of the job that you have while you are deploying yourself downrange. And I like this this notion of the stoic warrior, like you said, because they go hand in hand. And and for those of you that maybe you're not in the military or ex-military or have any aspirations to do that, or even as a first responder, you're still a warrior. There's still that spirit within you. If there's something that you believe in and you're willing to fight for it, that in and of itself is sort of what the, the crux of what a warrior is. So by having these the sort of things to anchor those beliefs to, it will help better serve you to do these things. I mean, a woman, if you get between her and her child, you're going to find a warrior quickly. Very much that so. That mama bear will come out. And that warrior is also the, the people that are willing to step forward and put themselves on the line for the rest of the community. There are not a lot of jobs, and like you said, first responders do this in the communities on a daily basis. Humans have shown that our capacity for war and violence means that it doesn't matter if you don't want to have warriors in society. If you don't, you will be enslaved. And so there is a necessity for people always in multiple different roles from the low levels of society up and through the military uh, when I mean low-level society, I mean the lower, like the community, the the local-level community, all the way to the military. That there is going to be a necessity for people to step forward and say, "We will risk it all," and and it comes with baggage, right? It comes with psychological baggage. It comes with physical baggage, and so it, it it's very, I think, important to learn how to come to terms with those things. It is, and they always say that a tribe without warriors is soon forgotten. 
we have to have those people that are willing, capable, have the skill set. And it's not that we do it because we hate an enemy. Sure. We do it because we love our country. We do it because we love the people that we're trying to defend. And that's, it's actually about love as opposed to hate. That's right. And I think that even on the, the personal side of things, when you really see soldiers, Marines and sailors get into some real moral injury situations, some real hardship situations for within themselves, it's it's because they've not been able to see it that way, right? They they have not been able to see their enemy as a circumstance. This is what I'm doing. They see it. They start to see their enemy as evil at the core. And it ends up it ends up creating some real issues down the road for how they are supposed to juggle that within their own minds. And I think that that's one of the reasons. I mean there's there's quite a few issues. It's one of the reasons why you see such a high level of suicide, especially in the combat arms units, and especially the closer that you get into combat to special operators, it, w- it is astounding to know the percentages and the rates of suicide within those groups of people. And so it is very hard to do the roles that they have to do and not have your psychology slip into that fashion, right? I mean, there's, there's roles that, that most individuals would never even understand the depth and complexity of the situations that they have to deal with and what that ends up meaning for them later on. And when they have to come back and they have to deal with that, they have to all of a sudden be a dad or they have to be a mom and they have to deal with doing things that they probably were not overly proud of with the moral choices that they made. And the realities are is that there's, that there's got to be different ways for them to compartmentalize these things. And it's just not easy. It's not easy. And the thing is, the trauma happens so quickly. It happens so rapidly. You cannot unring the bell. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, if you compartmentalize it too often, then there's not enough chance to recover. There's no capacity to really digest it. And you're constantly either deployed or you're constantly under fire. Or you're constantly right. in that place. And then when you do come back, again, you've gone from, we talked about transition right. before we hit record. You go from where literally, if I am not hydrated, Right. Literally, if I forget one piece of equipment on an operation, everybody else's life is in danger because of that, because I am not squared away on one item. That's right. And then you come into the civilian sector and you have a person who's on their phone, cutting you off in traffic, not using their signal, Mm -hmm. um, gives you the finger, you know, some punk. And if you were in the military, you almost want to pull that person over, pull them out of the the car and yell at them like they're a private. It's like what you, you know, what you're damaged. That's right. But. We can't expect people to have that standard because that's not what they've signed up for. They didn't do what we did in the voluntary capacity. But that's why I love stoicism where, you know, Marcus Aurelius is like, be disciplined with yourself, but be more easy for others, so to speak. Allow them to have that space. That's right. And 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 that that is a, another component of stoicism, right, is understanding that the world and that the people that you're dealing with are not stoic sages, right? And so there's multiple passages where... Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and even Seneca talk about how to deal with people when you're going to go out into situations and they are going to test your impulse control, right? Your anger, anger, which is was seen as from the Stoics as probably the most dangerous emotion. But how do you deal with those situations? And that's that's one of the things that I like about Stoicism as well, is it's it's also kind of a philosophy of resilience training philosophy of resilience training for you as a person. And so it kind of coaches you into ways to 
test your resilience before you get into situations, gives you strategies to test your resilience before you get into situations. And of course, we know that that modern cognitive behavioral therapy actually descended from stoicism. And a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy actually works and rests with the ability to kind of put yourself into situations that are trying for you and kind of give you a methodology for dealing with those. Build up a resilience to the emotional response that you're going to have that's going to trap the way you respond, right? And so it's thinking ahead of emotion so that your emotions are able to be compartmented into their proper place. It's not getting rid of emotion at all. In fact, modern psychology tells us this, and and the philosophy of stoicism is, is not a philosophy of pushing your emotions away. It's, it's how do you think about the things that are going to happen so that we can compartmentalize what's going to happen, have a logic to what's going to happen, think logically about what's going to happen so that we can actually make the best decisions for the events that, w- that we uh, encounter. Yeah, Emotions Assassinate the Truth. And I, I love this book. Well, I mean, I love Donald Robertson, obviously, but the book, the, the one that we're talking about, Philosophy of Cognitive Behavior, Stoic Philosophy as a Rational and Cognitive Psychotherapy, tremendous book. And like you said, it's very much logistic. It's very much Socratic. It's very much A plus B equals this. Right. And it's, it's simple. It, it is easy to, to talk about it. It's simple, but the execution is, is anything but simple and easy. And that's why we have to have this you know, whether it be a stoic meditation or whether it be a stoic reflection, journaling practice, whatever it is, and you're continually asking yourself, in what way am I culpable for this? Right. You know, in what way am I complicit in this? Right. Am I allowing this behavior? Am I allowing this anger in myself? So it's not that stoics don't laugh or don't have humor or don't love. They, they have all those right. things, but they understand some of these things need to be tempered in some capacity to not get out of our control and then allow that emotion because it's the ups and downs where people usually kind of make that mistake. If you're at the very peak of, yep. you know, anger or at the very depths of depression, the reactions that you have in those places, the decisions that you make from those places are never the best. And then it usually leads to another, this whole descending slippery slope of, of negative consequences. And by the way, you, you forgive yourself too, and you move on and you create an operating plan for self-improvement, right? I mean, another centric stoic principle is what we see in a lot of even Eastern philosophy is that you live in the moment. Present. Yes. You live in the present. You live in the moment. The last thing that you, I mean, one of the least things that you can control is the past, right? You can't control your actions of the past. Now, it doesn't mean you're not culpable for the actions that you've perpetrated in the past. And you may have some responsibility because of those sorts of things, but it doesn't mean that you have to wear the psychological baggage constantly of things that you now no longer have the ability to control. What you can do is analyze them, create a wise path forward, maybe a wise path for helping what you have potentially damaged and moving forward. That's it. And the other thing that I love about Stoic philosophy is that I've noticed, so I'll use religions, Mm -hmm. but there's still a belief system. If you're Christian and this person's Muslim, there's automatically a, a riff there. Or if I'm Taoist, and the rest of the world is not Taoist, it may be hard for me to make sense of what's going on or, or continue to practice that sort of philosophical ideal. But with Stoicism, as you say, people don't have to agree with what I agree with. They don't have to believe what I believe. I'm still able to navigate life, war, relationships, love, anger, happiness with these, these ideals, with these ethos, because they equip me with these tools to be able to do it. Nobody has to agree with what I believe in or 
or has to take, be able to step back and breathe and pause and really look at what's going on. If they're just reactionary, that's fine. And as you were saying, in Eastern philosophies, even in Viktor Frankl with this idea of there's stimulus and then there's response and within that gap, within that space is our capacity to step back and make a decision. It's called being, we're not, we're not reacting. We're responsible, able to respond. Right. And that takes practice. Right. It does quite a bit. And there is not, like, like I mentioned before, stoicism is sort of a, a resilience training philosophy. Resilience yes. training does not happen without practice, right? It is training. And studies also show that you can't do one-time resilience training and walk away and think it's going to stick forever, right? It's, it is a discipline because our minds are always willing to go that slippery slope into the path of least resistance, which generally creates the most resistance down the road. And so I wholeheartedly agree. It is constant training. It's constantly a discipline. And nobody said it was going to be easy, but we all heard the saying, nothing valuable, nothing worth having is ever going to be easy. No, nothing worth having is not guarded by some sort of adversity. And that's why even like you were saying, resistance training, like lifting weights, if I lift weights one time and I'm like, okay, I'm good. Yep. <laughs> that's, yep. that's not enough. It's, it's just enough to make you sore and scratch the surface and show you how weak you are, that's right. which is, again, if we can take the ego out of it yep. and just say, what what are the facts here? Again, the Socratic ideal, the idea of logic that stops us from having this opinion or trying to affirm a cognitive bias or deal with cognitive dissonance. It's like, no, that's not what we're talking about at all. And by doing that, we can actually execute and use empathy, genuine empathy, genuine love, right. genuine gratitude. I, I love the Stoics because they have genuine gratitude. It's not that fake bullshit gratitude right. where People have a little cursive notebook and they say, oh, I'm grateful for all the stuff that I have. It's like, well, a lot of the Stoics would look at the hardship and they say, where is the gift in this adversity? Where is this opportunity and this thing that I, I claim that I don't want? How am I going to navigate this and survive it? Because there is no other choice, especially, I mean, Meditations was written when Marcus Aurelius was yeah. on the line. I mean, in the Germanic Wars, he was literally out there yeah. doing it. And that's why I think it's such a beautiful work from someone who wasn't trained to be a soldier right he it, i mean that's that's kind of the exactly the philosophy of stoicism is he trained himself to be an excellent soldier which many times meant like you said i have to lose the ego and i have to listen to the people around me who are experts and then when we move forward we're moving a hundred percent together but you look at his meditations his first entire book was basically giving gratitude to all the people in his life and meditations wasn't written to be found later on and to be broadcast exactly. as some sort of great book for the ages. Even the name meditations, it wasn't called meditations at the time. It was it was basically mm -hmm. just notes to himself, right? These were he, right. a lot of self-affirmations. And in one way to look at the gratitudes is that many of those people probably offered things that were not easy for him to accept. And you can learn to offer gratitudes for the challenges that people actually give you. They give you the opportunity to grow and to grow internally. And I think that one of the biggest criticisms that, that I will hear from people about Stoic philosophy is that it, it's a philosophy about the self. It's, a not an, it's not an external philosophy. Personally, I think it's a very shallow way to look at it because it's sort of like the philosophy of how can I expect to know how to run the world or run an organization if I can't even make my bed in the morning, if I can't even clean my room? And so it's more of a philosophy of let me get myself in line as best I can 
so that I can better interact with the world. Because somebody who is the most virtuous person that they can be is going to have a much greater impact on how they deal with the world and people in the world than somebody who hasn't come to those sorts of terms is not looking at virtue and how they deal with the world and with themselves as being the highest order to to achieve happiness. And we use the term happiness as, again, kind of a a modern term. The ancient Stoics used the term eudaimonia, which mainly meant flourishing, right? It's it, because happiness can have some some traps into the way you think of happiness as though you're you're running around looking for pleasure. The Stoics believe that we're looking for a flourishing life, right? We're looking to do the best that we can, giving, living in according to nature, basically being given the skills that we have, right? The talents that we have. That, that's kind of what I was speaking to when I was at Stoicon, getting caught up within the semantics. Marcus Aurelius says, don't argue with a good man, it's just be one. Chances are we have a, at least an idea of a direction that we should go, whether it be right or wrong, right? Well, that's that's something that the Stoics argued as well, right? Is that we kind of have this right. natural, that mankind wants to naturally be virtuous, right? We want to naturally be good. We want to naturally be happy with the type of people we are. We generally see that that our greatest problems come when we're not living up to the standards that we know we should have for ourselves or that we have for ourselves, right? We, we're letting ourselves down. This is generally where people get to a sort of, of apathy and depression yes. with themselves because they've, they really feel like they've let themselves down and they can't stop living in events that either happened in the past or these visions of things that may happen in the future. It's stop, take a look at where you are now. You can always hit the reset button right? You may not, like we said before, you may not be able to undo things that happened in the past, but you can stop living there. That's exactly it. And I think also that comes down to back to self-knowledge because it's so easy for us to have this artificial pacification with social media or with, on. Um, you can watch whatever movie you want on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon or whatever it is. So, or, or even food, you just hit a button and it's delivered mm-hmm. to you or you want a date, you get on this website. But the idea is that all those things, that's that white noise right. that keeps us from actually hearing what's going on. And then, like you said, before you're going to bed and your head hits the pillow, if you have this thought of apathy, if you have this feeling of mediocrity, if you don't believe that what you're doing has purpose, or you know that you're under-indexing yourself, or you're not asking or demanding enough from yourself, that's what keeps you in that place where now everybody has this idea of, I'm stuck, right. and I need to find purpose. It's like, well, you do, but you need to understand yourself first before you start chasing after this purpose this may, that may or may not even be That's in right. alignment with your belief system or atheist, which is why stoicism is, is fantastic with that. Again, very simplistic ideas of where to go, what does this look like? And those reflections really keep us honest as opposed to, you know, bullshitting ourselves into right. some, some false dichotomy. That was part one of my interview with Stephen Roberts, a United States Marine Corps infantry veteran who currently works as a government contractor in global contingency theaters. You can hear part two of our interview on the next episode of Octonom Verba, where Stephen returns to discuss how stoicism helps you face danger, including life or death situations. Stephen also shares his experience of working at the Pentagon during the 9-11 attacks and how stoic philosophy played a role in his actions, how fear is a helpful tool when used correctly when facing adversity, and how stoicism is about much more than just war and violence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Octa Nonverba. 
If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Non Verba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.